Raising kids is hard. Uh, raising kids is really hard. Uh, and there are moments where you want to try to teach something really important to your kid. Uh, but it's tough. When your kid's little, when they're three, four, five years old, how do you teach these really big, important truths to a little five-year-old? I want to tell my kid all about substitutionary atonement, right? Jesus Christ. If you don't know that term, we got, to, we got some work to do. But I want to teach them all about the love of God, and you got to bring it down to a five-year-old level. you got to bring it down to a five-year-old level. A few weeks ago, my little girl ran a uh, lemonade stand. Let me put a picture up for you. Cutest lemonade stand you've ever seen. It was amazing. She made that whole thing, that whole sign. It was all her. And she made a killing. That's what happens when you charge a quarter and don't have change. You just, you end up quadrupling your money real fast. It's great. Um, but I wanted to teach my little girl, uh, and my wife particularly, wanted to take this moment. She made $15. It was her first money she ever made. And you know, every once in a while, we'll give each of our kids a dollar, and we'll go to the Dollar Tree, and we'll let them pick out a new toy. So she gets what a dollar can do. She understands that. And so she's got this $15 in her hand. And I wanted to take this tangible this actual money and use it as a teachable. I want her to take a tangible and use it as a teachable and teach with this moment that she could understand of this $15 a much more important truth. So my wife pulled her aside and said, sweetheart, um, you see that $15 you have? And she said, yeah. And we said, hey, we want you to know that's not really your money. We believe that every penny we ever have as a Chenery family, this is all God's money. Uh, he, he allows us to make money. He allows us to earn money, and he stewards. He, he asks us to manage his money. And sweetheart, one of the ways that we do that as a family is we take a portion of everything we make as a family, and we set it aside and give it back to our local church in order to fuel the work of God's kingdom through the church we believe in. And you should have seen this little five-year-old. You know, I can say that in a thousand meetings to people who have questions about giving towards the church and <laughs> never get a response of a five-year-old. <laughs> little five-year-old. She wanted to like, rip the money out. Can we give it to the church, please? And then we forgot to bring it that Sunday, and all the following week, she was like, Dad, do you have the money? We got to give it to the church. She was so excited to take this offering and give it to the Lord. As parents, we always look for tangibles that we can use as teachables. And frankly, that's what the great heavenly parent, God, what he has done for us all through scripture. He's regularly taking these tangibles, these things that the people of God could like relate to on some level, and they could kind of touch and feel. Maybe it was an object, or maybe it was a circumstance, or a trial, or maybe it was even a victory. And he, and he would like pull them aside, right? He'd, he'd pull the people aside, and he'd say, I want, you see that victory you just had? I want you to see something way beyond that victory. Like, that's not what it's about. It's about this. And then he'd point their eyes towards that much bigger thing. Today is just one of those things. It's these three chapters in the Old Testament where God's giving a design for the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. These tangibles, these things they could touch. And he's going to give them all these details of how to construct it. But the point is not the tabernacle. The point is what's above the tabernacle, what it all points to. And the big message, what he's trying to teach them is this. God loves his people with such a sacrificial, bold, radical love that they are in the hands of a God who knows them in their sin and yet are loved extravagantly anyways. And that's what he's trying to form in his people. This amazing, awe-inspiring reality that the God of the universe in all his holiness would love sinners like us. 
and he uses tangibles as teachables. Now, let's backtrack, remind ourselves of some context. We're going verse by verse through the whole book of Exodus. And what have we traced so far? The book of Exodus is the story of God's people as they came out of slavery in Egypt. God redeemed them and rescued them from slavery under Pharaoh, and they were brought out through these amazing signs and wonders that God did as he just trampled upon the gods of Egypt, the false gods of Egypt. And the one true God, Yahweh, Elohim, he brought them out of Egypt, and now he's forming a people, and they're in the wilderness. And the last two weeks, what we've learned is God's moral law. We've studied how God gave moral commands to his people. It was as if he was saying, hey, I've redeemed you, but it's not about you. you got to know that. It's about me, and it's about me winning a people from every nation to worship me before the throne of God. And so when the nations look in on you, living by the moral code that I gave you, that's Deuteronomy 6, when the nations look in on you living by this moral code, they're going to scratch their head in wonder and say, surely there is a great God above these people. For what kind of people have laws and statutes like these? See, the moral code was always about something much greater than just the moral code. And, and then we study this moral code, and now we get to Exodus 25 to 27, where God tells them to build this portable tent, this building, this home, for God to live in in their midst. Let's jump into Exodus 25, verse 1. Go 1 to 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution, that's an offering, from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hairs, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for the setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. Now let's just pause for a second. While those seem like foreign materials to all of you, he basically just went through the Pottery Barn uh, catalog and picked all the most expensive stuff. He just checked off. He's like, okay, what's the nicest stuff we can put together to make this tabernacle? And then he is going to build this home for God out of the nicest stuff. Now a question you might have is where, where did these recently freed slaves now wandering in the desert get all this wealth from to be able to build such a structure? The Egyptians. Someone was listening to this sermon a few weeks ago. Remember what God did. The last thing God did for the Israelites as they were coming out of slavery in Egypt was that he allowed them to plunder the Egyptians, literally taking wealth from the Egyptians. And so he didn't just leave them high and dry in the wilderness. He equipped them with everything they were going to need to form a, a lasting society. And that's really important because what's God saying to his people? He's saying, look, you know that gold you got? Remember, you didn't get that on your own. I got it for you. I plundered the Egyptians for you. So now what I want you to do is I want you to take a portion of that gold that I got for you, and I want you to put it back towards the building of this tabernacle. Why? Verse 8. Let's read verse 8 together. And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. There's a so that in that sentence. Let them make me a sanctuary so that I might dwell in their midst. God was not satisfied to dwell on the top of Mount Sinai and just yell down commands for them from a distance. He wanted to dwell in their midst. 
He wanted to move into their neighborhood. He wanted to do life with them. He wanted to be right in the center of them and be a part of their family and be a part of their fellowship and be a part of their battles and be a part of the challenges. And he wanted to be in the middle of it all. And he says, so that I can do that, build me a tabernacle that I might dwell in your midst. That's the whole point of the tabernacle. God wants to move in. And then he has this fascinating verse, verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. Moses, I'm going to give you all these instructions. And as we jump into 25 to 27, these are the chapters I guarantee you all skipped over a thousand times in your Bible reading plans. I know you did. You know why? Because it's lists of materials. And sometimes when we get to lists of materials, we go, all right, 29's got a good battle. Let's, let's jump to that chapter, right? And we skip over the details. But it's actually in the details where we see the glory of God. Every word of God's revealed scripture is powerful to communicate what God is trying to communicate to us. He says, every thread that you use in the construction of this tabernacle is important. Now, why is that? Why was it they had to make it exactly? Well, we as New Testament Christians have the New Testament, to shed some light on why that was so important. And there's literally commentary on that exact verse in the book of Hebrews. Let me read it to you. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 5 to 6. The writer of Hebrews is commenting on the Old Testament tabernacle that we're studying today. And he says this. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, Park, you've heard me preach that language out of Exodus already, right? Shadows and substance. Shadows and substance. In the Old Testament, they had shadows that were pointing them towards the substance, which is Christ. Where did I get it from? The book of Hebrews and the book of Colossians. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle we're studying today, he was instructed by God saying, and then he quotes the verse I just read to you, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now, this is huge. Let me interpret that for you. Every detail in the Old Testament tabernacle was a shadow radiating off the substance, which is Christ. Imagine the sun beating down on Jesus' shoulders and casting a shadow out from him. That shadow was the tabernacle. It was the Old Testament law. And all the details in there, if you look at those details, Hebrews chapter 8 says it was all a shadow pointing us towards Jesus. And so when we go and we look at the details of the tabernacle, we should see Jesus written over the whole thing as New Testament Christians. He's everywhere. He's in every detail. So why did God say, draw it, make this tabernacle, Moses, exactly as I tell you? Because God was saying, as the great T.D. Jakes says, don't draw my son wrong. Don't draw my son wrong, Moses. You're going to do this exactly as I say, because if you mess up one detail, you're messing up the shadow of my son and the glory that beams off of him. Don't draw my son wrong. Now, let's look at a big picture of the tabernacle. Look with me at this picture. Here's an artist's rendition of what this would have looked like. I'm giving you a big picture to start. What we notice is all of God's people are encamped around this big tent structure. And there are these walls, these white walls. There's an entrance on this end right here where you could walk in. And then there's a courtyard. And right in the middle of that courtyard is an altar. 
And there's an altar where sacrifices would be made. Constantly, every day, sacrifices for sin. So sinners would go into this structure, into the courtyard. They'd offer their sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And then in the back, there's this tent. That's the house where God would live. Now, next slide. This is a close-up of that tent with one of the walls peeled back so you can see inside what it would look like. There's two compartments, and there's some furniture in there, isn't there? It's kind of like a house. God told Moses, make me a house and put some furniture in there. <laughs> make me a nice home. Now, look at this. In the front room, we got three pieces of furniture. We got a big lamp. We got a table with bread on it. That's the one closest to me. And then we got a, a big altar where incense would be offered, right? Now, then there's a big curtain. There's a big purple curtain. That curtain separated that back room. That back room is called the most holy place. Or, as we see in Scripture, it's the holy of holies. No one can go in the holy of holies but one person once a year. Now, why is that? Because that's where God would stand. When the artist in this rendition draws that light beaming up, it's because he's standing on top of that piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant that sits in the Holy of Holies. And the, what would happen is God would stand on top of the Ark of the Covenant and he would speak to Moses. The book of Numbers says Moses used to go in the tent regularly and God would descend, stand on the Ark, and speak with Moses as if speaking to a friend. But it was separated from the people by a big curtain. No one could go in the Holy of Holies. Now, let's study a few of these artifacts we find in there. Again, I'm guessing you've read over this a thousand, no, maybe not a thousand times, three times, four times. You've read over it many times before, and I want to show you Jesus in this. Let's start with the table of the showbread. This was a table that was instructed to make where they would put bread out. We find the table in the showbread, Exodus 25, verses 23 to 30. Let me read a couple verses. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. A cubit is a unit of measurement. Shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And he goes into the details of how to construct this table to put bread on. Now, why is it important to put bread out before the presence of God regularly? It's not like God was coming out of the Holy of Holies needing this bread. Yet, they had to put bread out there all the time. Well, God's using a tangible as a teachable. And the point is this, God wants to dine with you. You know what's going to happen in heaven? Look, look, what he's saying is, don't fix your eyes here. Fix your eyes and your whole life on heaven. Let me read to you out of Revelation. This is Revelation. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Did you know there's coming a day where you will literally dine at the marriage supper of the Lamb? You're going you're gonna to eat a meal with the King of Kings. You're going to be in his presence. You're going to literally sit down and share heavenly food with him. Moses is looking down saying, God's looking to Moses saying, don't draw my son wrong. There's details in there that are pointing to heavenly truth. Don't draw him the wrong way. Make him the right way. How about the lampstand, Exodus 25? Actually, with the bread, we also remember Jesus in the book of Matthew, right? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the one that you will eat and never hunger. He says in Matthew verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke, and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. It all points to Jesus. 
How about the lampstand that's in there? It looks like a big menorah. It's got seven big kind of poles coming off of it with oil on it. Exodus 25, verses 31 to 40. Let me read a portion of this to you. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cup, its calyxes, its flowers shall be of one piece and with it. And then jumping down a little bit, you shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up as to give light on the space in front of it. Now, to keep a lamp like that running at all times took a lot of oil. In the middle of the dark desert, there would be one place in the midst of all the darkness where light would be shining brightly. Just imagine that for a second. You're the people of God. You're in the midst of darkness. All you got is a starlight. And yet there's one place that's got a seven-pronged lamp burning light 24-7. It's the brightest place in all the wilderness, in the midst of all the darkness. But it even points beyond, to heaven, beyond, beyond that. See, we know from the book of Revelation, this is amazing. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. When describing a vision of heaven, we read this. Then I turned, and I saw the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. He's describing heaven. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with golden sashes around his chest. John's describing reality. That's not like a metaphorical scene. That's heaven. Seven golden lampstands, and one like the Son of Man standing in the midst of it. Moses places this tabernacle right around the midst of where God would stand and speak to his people. What was God saying to Moses? Don't draw my son wrong. You follow the instructions exactly as I tell you. How about the entrance gate? Let's read about this entrance gate. Go back to the slide before this where you get the big picture. How many entrances can sinners go into to get into the presence of God? Shout it, church. There's just one. It's a whole white tent, and then right in the front, there's this purple gate. There's this purple entrance. You can't miss the entrance. It's the most beautiful part from the outside looking in. Just like Jesus is the most beautiful part of the church from the outside looking in. We screw it up all the time. Just get him Jesus. He's pretty good, right? Exodus chapter 27, verse 16. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. There's one entrance that people can't miss, that they can go into and bring their sacrifices to approach the presence of a holy God for sinners like us to go in the presence of God. Maybe you're thinking right now, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God's looking down at Moses saying, don't draw my son wrong. There isn't four entrances into this place. There's one entrance into this place. You got to come the way I tell you to go. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Don't draw my son wrong. How about the main altar in the courtyard? Think about this for a moment. There in the main altar of the courtyard are animals being sacrificed over and over. Every day, you got bulls, you got oxes, you got rams, you got lambs, goats. Later on, they'd bring in turtle doves if you couldn't afford one of the bigger animals. And so constantly, you have the aroma of 
animal sacrifice and blood being shed, filling it. And it's an open-air place. And look how close the people of God are dwelling to it. It's right in the middle. The smell of roasting flesh, the smell of the smoke constantly going out, reminding sinful people that have been chosen by God, it's not on your own merit. You are sinners. And the only reason that God is able to dwell in your midst is because he's chosen to dwell in your midst. That is not your right or your privilege. Don't draw my son wrong, Moses. Don't draw my son wrong. Now, if we go back to the ark, back in the most holy place, cut back to the slide with the most holy place, we see in that back room, there's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, those of you that have seen Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant have a 75% accurate take of what the Ark of the Covenant is. You might remember the scenes where wax faces start melting when they look on the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. There's actually truth there. To be honest with you, it's not too far off. I don't know if your face melts, but you certainly die. That's all through Scripture. You don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. If you do, you die. Uzzah touched it. He treated the Ark of the Covenant like it was a common piece of table salt. He died instantly. Indiana Jones wasn't too far off. They just got the visual wrong. <laughs> Let me read to you. I want to read, because this is so important, I'm going to read the fullness of the description of the Ark of the Covenant. Your tendency is going to be to get bored as I'm reading this. But what I want to show you is Jesus, literally, in every word. I want to teach you, church. I want to teach you to love the Word of God with such a passion that you look at even a list in the Old Testament and you say, God has revealed truth to me. I can't, what is he telling me? I want you to see if you can see Jesus in this as I read it to you. Exodus 25, 10 to 22. They shall make an ark. An ark is literally a box. The ark, like for example, Noah's ark. It was a big container that, he, that Noah made to house holy objects. Here, they're going to make a box, an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. Now, why do you need poles to carry the ark? Because if you touch the ark, you die. So you need poles to carry the ark, right? No one touches where God stands, right? You need poles to carry them, and you shall, the poles that shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. Why is that? Well, the more you take poles out of something, you do that enough time, eventually the pole is going to break. And this is a holy object. It's a very sacred object. And so you leave the poles in there, and then when you go to pick it up, you just pick the poles up. Remember, this whole tent is portable. It goes with them through the wilderness. Don't want the poles to break. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Moses was instructed to put the Ten Commandments into this testimony. Now, a little trivia here for you. This is actually important. Some people, when they think of the Ten Commandments, they think of the two slabs, and they think of five commandments on one stone and five commandments on another stone. Realistically, that's not what it was. It was all ten were written on both stones. One was a copy for humanity, 
in terms of their relationship with God. One was a copy of God's in terms of what he had instructed for them. Two copies, one for humanity, one for God, placed inside this ark. Keep going. You shall make a mercy seat, a kippur seat, a pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. If you could go to the next slide so there's a visual as I'm describing this. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, there on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you above all that I will, about all that I will command you about all I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Did you see Jesus in every word? Did you see him everywhere, literally on every verse? You missed it, right? All right, let me see if I can help you out. Let me help you. I'm gonna help you interpret all of this. You ready? What kind of wood was used for the Ark of the Covenant? Shout it out loud, somebody. Acacia wood. Now, why is that important? Well, a good Israelite in that day, or frankly, anyone living in that day and age, would know that inside acacia wood, there was gum that was used for medicinal purposes. You know what that means, church? It means on top of the box that God would stand, there was a box that had literally healing in the wood. There was, there was healing in the wood itself. That's where God would stand. The healer, the great healer would come down and he'd stand on a place and literally the box was a tangible, that was a teachable, there was healing in the wood. Don't draw my son wrong, Moses. Where he stands, there's healing. How about those cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant? What are they doing there? Why is it so important? All those verses given to how the cherubim, those angels ought to be faced. Well, maybe as Bible students, we're going to go to a place where we know about the actual throne room of God. If this is where God stands, maybe that's a reflection of where he really stands in heaven. Let's read about that place in Isaiah 6. Let me read that to you. Isaiah 6, 1 to 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Here's a vision of the throne room. Above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim and cherubim oftentimes go together, types of angels, created beings. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's not metaphor. That's reality. Around where God is, there are these angelic created beings called seraphim or cherubim are similar beings. And they recognize the holiness of God. <clears throat> so much so that they take two of their wings and they constantly cover their eyes because they know they could never look upon the holiness of God in the throne room, ever. And they just shout out constantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Then they take two of their other wings and they cover their feet. You know why they cover their feet? Because in that day and age, the feet were a sign of dirtiness. 
In fact, I lived in a country for a, for a while where you couldn't put your feet up at somebody like this because the bottom of their feet, it was considered an insult, and they would never want to insult God, so they covered their feet as well, and then they hovered around the throne room of God. That's reality. That's not describing a metaphor. That's God. And so when they're instructed to build the platform on which God would stand, they're going to make it look like reality. It's going to be a tangible that's used as a teachable. Look to heaven. Keep your gaze on heaven. That's where I want you fixed. How about that mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant? The mercy seat, the, the Hebrew word for mercy seat is kippur, kippur. If you have Jewish friends, you know they celebrate a holiday called Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur. Yom in Hebrew means day. Kippur means atonement or reconciliation. It's the day of atonement, the day of atonement. Now, what happens on the day of atonement is that once a year, a high priest has the ability to enter into the Holy of Holies. Other than that, nobody goes behind the curtain. It's too holy. That's where God is. But once a year, a high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he'll go first offer a bull on that altar in the courtyard as a sacrifice for his own sins because he knows he's a sinner and he can't go into the Holy of Holies without having sacrifice made on his behalf. And then he'll sacrifice a lamb and catch that lamb's blood in a basin. And then he'll walk around the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies. And as he does so, he's got a rope tied to his leg. And other priests are standing in the other section holding the other end of that rope. Just in case that priest dies in the presence of the Lord, they need a mechanism to be able to pull him out without anybody else going into the presence of God. So they keep a rope attached to his leg. Historians tell us it did happen that priest died and needed to be pulled out by that rope goes in with that lamb's blood. He takes the lamb's blood and he pours it over the mercy seat. Once a year, pouring the blood of a lamb on the atonement cover, on the feet of God where God stands. And, and because of that, reconciliation was being made for all the sins of the people that they did and the sins they didn't even know they had committed. It, it kept them in a relationship with God. But because it was lamb's blood, it was just an animal, it, it had no eternal significance. Because it was just finite lamb's blood, once a year, you had to keep going in. And on Yom Kippur, the high priest had to keep making that same sacrifice. Now, just for a moment, I don't do this often as a church, uh, because I think if you do this too often, it's unhealthy. But sometimes it's healthy. Today's a good, healthy day to do it. I want you to think about the worst sin you've ever committed. It's not comfortable, I know. I want you to think about that thing that keeps you up at night cringing, right? So, chief of sinners, right here. I got mine. I want you to think about the things and the scars you carry guilt with you about the decisions you made in life, the way you've treated people, the way you've gossiped about people, the way you've backstabbed people, the way you've hurt people, the way you've not offered forgiveness to people. You got it? That's why that curtain is there. It's because of that. Because we're sinful. 
And so long as we carry sin with us, there has to be a curtain between us and God. Because no sinner can stand in the presence of God. If you're in this room today and you don't know about God, I want to tell you something. There is no possible way you can ever have the right to stand before God in heaven. It just doesn't work. If, you, if you're not a follower of Christ, on your judgment day, if you don't know Jesus, the answer is not God's just going to let you in. We can't go before God. There is a curtain separating us between a holy God and sinners like us. And we know it. And we know it. But God desires to dwell among his people. And so there's this tension that's held and a curtain that stands. God desires to commune with his people. He's hinted at that all through scripture. And that whole tabernacle was pointing them towards substance that would one day come. It was all a shadow saying, this is to point you towards the one who will come. And then John 1, 14. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word that's used there, some of your translations show it. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He moved into the neighborhood. He dwelt among us. A holy God, the same God that would stand on that atonement seat, united himself with a human body, condescended into human flesh, and lived a life among us. He sweat like us. He bled like us. He felt like us. He lived like us. He walked like us. Everything we experienced, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, experienced it to the full degree. You know why? Because where we fail in our temptation, Jesus never failed. That means that if we're on this journey of temptation and we fall at some point, Jesus went further than we did. He experienced even more temptation than we did. He went all the way. Jesus tabernacled among us. He dwelt with us. Why? Well, God's character has never changed. This is what God always wanted to do. It's what the shadow always pointed towards, but now the substance has come. Jesus died on a cross. Church, I want you to understand what happened when Jesus died on a cross. You know, one of my great concerns for us as a church is that we are a church of very spiritually immature people. I fear that sometimes what we do is we get into rhythms, just rhythms of everyday Christianity, living normally as if the way we do our faith and the way we do our, read our Bibles and never really growing in sacrifice, never really growing in our knowledge of God, never really standing in awe that God would reveal himself to us, a holy God to sinners like me, never growing in awe of that. Sometimes I feel we're so spiritually mature, we don't understand the deeper things of Scripture. This is one of those deeper things of Scripture right now, and it's not to be glanced over. we got to move off the milk and honey and get to the meat. What has Jesus accomplished? Let me read it to you. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he's referring to the lesser tent that was the shadow, and now the greater tent that Jesus went into. The greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not like the one that Moses made with, as a creation. He entered, Jesus entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience. Hear that word, purify our conscience 
from dead works to serve the living God. He explains it to us. Jesus, the great high priest, the truer high priest, not in the line of the Levitical priesthood, but after the order of Melchizedek, a different priestly lineage, he entered into a different tabernacle, a heavenly tabernacle, and he offered blood for the atonement of sins, but it wasn't finite temporal blood like lamb's blood that every year had to be offered over and over again, constantly the smell of flesh roasting because of sinners like us, he offered eternal blood. You know what that means? It means that every sin, past, present, and future, is fully covered by the high priest who offered his own blood and poured it out on the atonement seat. It's done away with. If you know what that means, it means that you don't have to lie awake at night anymore in shame over the mistakes you've made. He's done away with it. He's offered you full forgiveness, not this, I screwed up again and now I'm guilty. No, 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 no. When you go to the holy of holy place, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, Jesus is looking back at you and he says, I know all your sin before you ever committed it. And I offer my blood so that we could dwell together for all eternity. That's the God we serve. And then you want to know what happened when he died? Get this. I'm going to read something to you. And here's what I want you to do as a church. Ready? When I read this, I want with one big voice everyone to shout out hallelujah as loud as you can. Pamela, you lead us back there, all right? You're going to shout hallelujah. When I raise my hands, someone shout hallelujah for me. Here's what happened when Jesus died. Behold, ready for this? Behold, Matthew 26, 27. Behold, the curtain, ready? The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Someone shout it. Hallelujah! The curtain was torn in two. You know what happened? God ripped it up. He ripped it up. The high priests were standing in that temple that day, and all of a sudden they looked on the Ark of the Covenant, and they looked in the holy place, and they said, uh-oh, what's happened? Meanwhile, Jesus had just been sacrificed, the final high priest, the one who gave his life, and he tore it up. What that means is there's no division between you and God anymore in Jesus Christ. The curtain's been torn down, and he can dwell among you in full. He wants to be part of your family. He wants to be part of your life. He wants to wake up with you in the morning. He wants to, you to be his last thought before bed. He wants to walk with you and talk with you and link himself to you. He wants to love you and protect you and heal you and defend you and strengthen you and justify you and sanctify you and glorify you and be with you in your trial and be with you in your victory and walk every moment of your day with you. Why? Because the curtain was ripped in two when his blood was shed on the cross. Church, this is what Jesus has accomplished for you. And it's not side material. This is the gospel. He offered eternal blood that you would have life in full, never walking in shame again. This week, someone asked me, they said, Rafe, what, what's your big hope for your church? What do you want more than anything for your people? You know how I answer that? <laughs> I... I I didn't have words. I said, I said, you guys know me, so forgive me. I said, I just want, oh, I, want my, I'm, oh, I want my people to just be so excited about Jesus. 
that's what I said. You know why? Because when you get what that tabernacle pointed towards and you understand that day in, day out, sinners like us to stand before a holy God, we got to come with blood. But Jesus offered his blood on our behalf. Then you, then you get your faith. Then you understand this thing. Then you understand what it means to walk in victory and wholeness and fullness and not carry your shame with you anymore because Jesus paid it all on the cross and he offered his blood on the perfect mercy seat, thereby forgiving all of your sin. And when you get that, there's something inside of you that just looks at the revealed word in God and says, precious, I want all of it. I want every bit of it, church. Jesus shed his blood for you that you would be forgiven in full. In full. <laughs> Amen. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the pure, perfect blood that was shed on our behalf, that we might not have to keep offering sacrifices, that we could commune with you, that we could live with you. God, forgive us. Forgive us when we take it all for granted and we skim over verses of the Bible thinking they're unimportant. You gotta let us see Jesus today. God, let everything about our life be different because you had your way with us today. Let us be those kind of people that the nations look in on this group, this group, and they say, surely there's a God over them. Look at the way they live their life. They're, they're intoxicated with Jesus. He's got a hold of everything. God, would you form that in us? Wherever that is lacking in here today, form it. We want to chase after you with everything we got. Amen. <laughs>